recorded during the plague year 2020. This is the Andromeda Minute, a show where Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays we go over one minute of Robert Wise's all too timely 1971 techno thriller, The Andromeda Strain, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm one of your hosts, Jim O'Kane of TVDads.com. And I'm Toshi Komatsu, and I am a planetarium director in California. Toshi, thanks so much for being on the show. This is, uh, I, you know, I never thought when I watched this show, uh, when I watched this movie as a kid, I never thought that the uh, the part about grabbing a piece of uh, extraterrestrial material from space was going to be a, a real thing, um, you know, apart from like the lunar landings and things. But uh, here we are at the time we're recording this. Uh, we not only have one, but two separate missions coming back with uh, interplanetary material from from asteroids. Um, it's like we're kind of living in the, in the world of uh, of this movie. Yeah, it's kind of a, an amazing time because uh, there was sort of like a golden age of solar system exploration with the Voyager missions in, in the 80s. Um, and we're kind of getting a, a new golden age right now with all, all sorts of solar system missions, uh, including, as you say, two missions uh, bringing back uh, samples from asteroids right now. Yeah, it's it's just uh, astonishing. I mean, I, I'm glad that I live long enough to see this. Uh, it's it's an unexpected part. There's so much. It, most of the you know the focus in the '60s, people concentrated so much on uh, the lunar landings, like that was the be all and end all. But in, in the intervening decades, we've done so much for uh, you know examining the solar system and then uh, worlds beyond the solar system. Uh, I know that you you played a role. In uh, in looking at extra extra solar uh, system uh, planets on the on the Kepler project. So uh, yeah, so I was actually the at one point the one of the co-principal investigators for the education and the public outreach for the Kepler mission. So I was helping to um, mostly update the website, but also come up with uh, activities and curricula for uh, the public and and for use in classrooms as well for the Kepler mission, which was uh, all about finding. Uh, extrasolar planets, planets outside of our solar system, uh, with the first mission designed to discover planets that could be about Earth size. So it was the first mission to find terrestrial sized planets, and uh, we found a whole bunch. Wow, yeah, and I, I, you had a particularly difficult uh, role in, in, in your part of the project in that you had to explain things like uh, radio velocities and, and uh, tr- uh, understanding uh, transit variances and things. Yeah. Uh, Actually, it turned out that um, some of that stuff, it was a lot easier than uh, some other missions. Like sometimes you get missions where it's studying, you know, some obscure thing about solar wind and you have to, you know, kind of have 20 minutes just to kind of explain what the science is. And then here's the mission and here's, you know, what it's about. So the Kepler mission was actually kind of nice because you could, it was pretty easy to say, well, we're looking for um, other planets around other stars. And that's something that at least people could get their minds around pretty quickly. And then you can go into some of the detail about exactly how they were doing it. Um, yeah, with the, it, with the it's, still, it, it's, it's just amazing. The, the things that I, I, as a kid, I never thought we'd know so much about uh, not only our own solar system, but other solar systems. This is just such an unexpected thing to, to be able to find out. Uh, and, you know, here we are getting pieces back from uh, from these asteroid missions, which, you know, sim- not, well, hopefully not with little green blobs all over them, but uh, be, being able to find uh, things from the, you know, from the asteroid belt and, and finding out the, the very beginnings of our, of our solar system, you know, right here in our relatively uh, back, own backyard. Yeah, um, yeah, it really is an amazing thing. And, and there's a couple of firsts 
um, happening with these missions uh, that uh, I'm sure we'll get into uh, in a bit here. But uh, yeah, it's, it really is an exciting time. Yeah, it, it, one of the things that I'm always impressed by uh, is, I mean, you've you've been involved in in the Kepler program, but these other missions, you think about, you know, we we hear about these things when they're happening, when when Kepler when they announce uh, they found new new planets, new Earth-like planets, and things like that. Everybody goes, "Wow, that's interesting!" But the there's so much work behind it that that stretches out years and decades. Um, I think, uh, I'm not sure, but I think the Kepler, the, the actual first suggestions of having Kepler going started back in the early 80s. And this, you know, it, it brought us into the 21st century of, of finally getting an operational mission. Um, the, the design and the uh, figuring out figuring out what it is that you wanted to learn in the project, uh, de- you know, just, just writing out the paperwork of it seems to take a long time. Uh, before we actually start, you know, loading hardware onto spaceships. Yeah, and in fact, the the idea for the mission, I, I think, started out even earlier than that. It, it might have even been in the um, in the seventies, maybe even earlier. I forget off the top of my head right now. But um, part of what took so long is is uh, we actually had to wait until computers were actually good enough to process the data that we needed. Um, and I know one of the uh, the principal investigators, the the sort of one of the people, the really the driving force behind the mission, uh, Bill Baruki. Um, he had he, he actually got denied. Uh, I think it was four times before NASA finally approved the mission because they kept saying, um, you know, like you don't need or you uh, you need better precision. Like there's no way to measure that. So he had to go out and, and the team they figured out how to measure to the precision that they needed. And they said, well, you need to figure out you know this aspect. You know how you're going to differentiate it from just uh, other stars. So then they did the survey to figure out all the detailed information about all the stars. So there's definitely an iterative process uh, to get these things done. And uh, it starts back, you know, people build their whole careers around, you know, single missions. And so it, it really does take a long time. You hear about the mission and there's a result, but there's a whole lot of work that goes into before the mission. And uh, even though the Kepler mission itself is over, even the extension of the K2 mission, uh, that's over now as well. But uh, the Kepler mission in particular, you know, it studied a star systems or, or studied a patch of sky for over four years continuously, a single patch of sky. And people are going to be studying that data for years and years and years and writing papers about it. So there's all sorts of, it's a, it's a real treasure trove of information that they got with just the one mission. So all sorts of things um, besides planets as well. Um, people who are interested in stars and variable stars. Um, it's a, it's a data set that no one had ever done before to look in one part of the sky continuously without the atmosphere to worry about, to just be staring at one piece of sky for over four years continuously, taking all that data. So there's all sorts of information in there that scientists, they're going to be studying that for years and years and years. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, when I think about how many, you know, hundreds and even thousands of people will use that data set to, you know, write write dissertations and, and make new ex- make new discoveries in, in the stuff that we have here now on the ground. Uh, when I watch this movie, and especially in this particular minute, and it's been going on for several minutes, where it's two scientists looking at a uh, a rock and a green blob, and they're the only ones in the in the room <laughs> doing this. It just uh, of in terms of realism, I keep thinking somebody built that room. Somebody, you know, they designed all this equipment and things. And although I think I guess you could describe Doctor Stone in this in this particular minute as the principal investigator. He should have a whole you know, army of people <laughs> working with him doing photo analysis and doing um, spectrography and, and things like that. Just the two of them just sitting there at five o'clock in the morning uh, working a camera. Just that 
it bothers me a little bit on the scientific method here. Yeah, I think it, it kind of goes back to this, you know, conception that people have of, you know, like the lone scientist, you know, making their discovery. Um, and that's really not how science is done these days. Science is such a collaborative effort. And you have, um, you know, sometimes you get dozens of names on a paper that you publish. So, you know, even the Nobel Prizes, which were just announced recently, um, for uh, as we record this podcast, but um, those are you know people that they single out, but usually it's attached to those whole teams of people working on it uh, that you know lead to Nobel Prize winning work. Um, so there there are as you say teams and teams and teams of people who look at it, and everyone's got their bit of expertise. And these uh, collaborations they happen you know across the country and international as well. And so it really isn't. Uh, there is, there really isn't that one scientist, you know, alone in their lab making discoveries, or even with just, you know, one or two other people. Um, there's all sorts of people, and as you say, people have to build uh, the laboratory and build the equipment. And sometimes it's, you know, it's brand new equipment. It's not like, you know, you go down to the Best Buy and you, you know, you pick up that piece of equipment that you need. Sometimes they're designing that equipment to do this specific job, uh, and there's only maybe, you know, one or two of them in the whole world um, because you're custom building it for that lab. Toshi, can I ask, how, how did you get involved in science? I mean, I'm assuming this is something that you, you've done since childhood, but how did you get involved in you know, astrophysics and, and getting, getting in, in touch with, uh, with learning what you wanted to do uh, as, a, as a career? Um, you know, in some ways, I kind of just fell into it. You know, as a kid, you know, we're all kind of curious about the world, and, and I guess I kind of kept that up, and, and one of the, you know, the courses that I took when I was in junior high and high school you know, I always really liked science and physics in particular um, held an interest. I think part of it because, you know, physics was a way to, to predict the future, right? Like you have all these equations that tell you how forces act and, and that kind of really intrigued me. And then when I uh, went to college, um, I, you know, thought of, I actually uh, got a physics degree, um, but I did a double major with, with astrophysics. Um, wow. And I think in some ways I felt like uh, ast astronomy or astrophysics was a nice concrete way to sort of apply physics um, on, on a grand scale. So, and, and it kind of intrigued me as well that the rules of physics that we come up with and develop here on Earth, like these are rules and laws that should still apply elsewhere in the universe as well. So the same physics that, uh, you know, governs that, uh, you know, that apple falling in the classic example of Newton right? That the apple falls due to gravity. And that's the same force that keeps the moon in orbit around earth and earth going around the sun. It's all gravity. And we can all describe that with physics that we can develop here, but then we can apply it on these universal scales. Yeah. And it, it is something that you do. It, 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 science is not an overnight thing that you build, building up a background in it as you have you as you've done with uh with physics and with with learning astrophysics uh, the, the other part of this of this movie that always bothers me is that uh it, it seems like they learn things instantly and it's not this isn't an instant thing there's it's there's a lot of you know burning the midnight oil and stuff and having to having to learn uh what you know what to do with the information that you have um right, right. It's, uh, but again, you know, it, this is this movie's only two hours long, so you really they don't have time to say. And then we just did another study, and then we had a couple of interns assigned to uh, looking right. up. Yeah, that, that doesn't make for very good uh, movie watching. There. Yeah, <laughs> so. yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's difficult, but it's. I mean, it, it, there are moments though. I would imagine when when you were working on the uh, on the Kepler uh, project, when a new 
when there was enough proof that a, another exoplanet has been discovered, that must have been a, a great feeling for the whole team when when a moment like that, a, an aha moment, comes by. Oh yeah, there were all sorts of uh, you know first that the that the Kepler mission was able to uh, to verify and things that really surprised people like sort of before the Kepler mission, you know the idea of a planet going around you know, multiple stars, like we see in like Star Wars with, with, you know, Tatooine that has two suns. Um, that was something that, you know, initially a lot of people thought, well, you know, that it's, it's very difficult to get a stable orbit. So we're probably not going to be able to find very many like that, but we, you know, um, we found several like that now and, and yeah, the conditions they're they're a little tricky, but it can be done. And, and it's a, it's a lot more common uh, than, than we thought. So there are all sorts of aha moments, uh, like that. And then developing brand new techniques, um, like the, uh, transit timing variation that was a brand new technique that was developed for uh, for the Kepler mission and to analyze all the data um, so there are all sorts of firsts in there and so you know those things happen but again they, they do take a lot of work and, and a lot of that information instant, in, isn't instantaneous and uh, in the planetarium one thing that I try to get across to folks is that you know science is a process so it's not about the answer but it's actually about how you get that answer. And you want to make sure that you dot all your I's and you cross all your T's. And especially when you're discovering something new, you want to make sure that you're right. So you don't want to just sort of come up with an idea. Part of science is having other scientists look at it and say, well, did you think about this? Did you think about that? Um, and if you haven't thought about those things, then you know you kind of have to go back to the drawing board. But to truly find something new, it takes a lot of rigorous work to make sure that you've eliminated all other possibilities and uh, what you're saying is true. Uh, if it's the first time you're hearing about it or that anyone's uh, articulated it, uh, you've got to make sure that there aren't any other better ways to explain it that have come before. So um, that process is really what the important thing is when you're talking about science. I, I think one of the greatest uh, revelations of the Kepler project is that, uh, it, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a pretty safe bet that there are more planets than stars in our galaxy. And finding that out was just astonishing i mean it's not it's not definitive but you can you can easily uh extrapolate from the the data that you have that we live in a planet rich galaxy oh yeah and that was um that was one of the very exciting results of of course you know we had all uh hoped that was true um but as uh we're the mission was being planned um you know even a null result that is to say even if we don't find any planets that's an interesting result as well because that means that there aren't very many planets but it sort of exceeded all expectation about the number of planets that we found because uh, you'll have to remember that the Kepler mission was looking at this one small part of the sky. It was something like one four hundredth of the entire sky. And just in that one patch, Kepler discovered, um, you know, they haven't all been confirmed yet, but the, the vetting processes that they have um, are pretty good. So most of them are going to be confirmed. But it found something, you know, on the order of 5,000 planets um, and again, not all of them would be confirmed, but most of them, we'll just call it 5,000. And that's in an area of the sky that's only one four hundredth of the sky. So immediately you can sort of multiply that across the whole sky, as you say, extrapolate that. And so then, you, you know, it goes up by a factor of 100. And then you realize that the method that Kepler was using was the transit method. And, and that's when you have a planet pass between the light and your observation um, of the Kepler mission there. And so it's blocking a little bit of that light, but that takes a very, very specific orientation, which is only about what only happens about 1% of the time. So you can, again, multiply that by another 100 because you, even, there's even more planets that are in that field of view, but Kepler is not able to find them because unless that planet passes in front of the star to block a little bit of, of that light, 
Kepler is not able to find it, but those planets are still there. So uh, again, you can sort of keep multiplying there and you find out that, um, as you say, that our galaxy is rich with planets. And Kepler was one of the first missions to act as sort of like a, it was kind of like a survey, right? To take a sample of this one, you know, fairly ordinary piece of the sky. Um, there was nothing particularly special about it. Um, there are reasons to pick that, that particular field of view, but most of it was having to do with we want to do follow-up observations and we want to make sure that it's out of the, the plane of the Milky Way because if you're looking right in the Milky Way, there's actually too many stars uh, to count. So there are reasons to pick that field. But on the whole, it was meant to be sort of an ordinary patch of the sky. Uh, and the fact that we found so many planets just in this one, you know, uh, I don't want to call it random because it wasn't totally random, but it's just ordinary patch of sky. That patch of sky should be just like any other patch of the sky, pretty much. So uh, it was that was sort of an amazing thing to find out how prevalent planets really are. Wow, it it it, it you almost get vertigo thinking about, <laughs> thinking about the just the, the scope and the the range of what Kepler's discover. It it it. it could easily I mean, people point to the Hubble, which is you know the fantastic pictures and and data that we get back from Hubble. But Kepler is such a a, a, a paradigm shift in how we look at uh, the Milky Way. And you know there's uh, there's more missions to come with uh, you know with other with other missions coming up shortly. But uh, just this this little dip in the ocean, uh, it's really changed the way we see the, the cosmos. Yeah, it it really did. Um, because before Kepler, and you know, I've seen it graphed out, and there's different animations that have been made. But you know, the number of planets that we knew before, you know, we found the first planets around uh, sun-like stars in 1995, which you know, as we're recording this, is only 25 years ago. Um, but in that 25 years, you know, first we found a few, and then we found a few more, and then we found a few more. And if you graph it out, once Kepler starts releasing results in 2009, there's this huge, you know, upsurge in, in the bar graph, if, if you're graphing it out that way. And there's this huge surge. So all of a sudden we went from knowing a few hundred to starting to know hundreds and hundreds and then thousands. And uh, within just 25 years, we found thousands of exoplanets. Uh, which wow. again is it's truly an amazing pace. Yeah, and it must have been very satisfying for for the crew working on this. I I can't imagine how it, it it must have been just a great time going to work every day saying this is amazing. Yeah, it it really was. And again, we uh, with Kepler, we were able to find planets in batches. Again, before as well, we found one, and then we found you know another one. But with Kepler, we were able to discover batches of planets uh, at a time. <laughs> Wow, that's astonishing. Well, well I, I want to continue this discussion uh, on Wednesday, and I do appreciate you being being a part of the show because this is it, it's it's nice knowing fifty years ago and seeing uh, these two scientists working on something extraterrestrial. But this is you know extrasolar. Just it, the, the 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 scope and the picture gets a little bit bigger. Um, but anyway, we're going to talk some more about uh, actually we're we're, we're probably going to get back more to uh, talking about asteroid mining and things like that on Wednesday. Uh, if people could join us then, I uh, appreciate you coming back. If you haven't, if you've missed any of our previous shows, they're always available at uh, places like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. Or you can find us at the big site andromedaminute dot com. Uh, if you'd like to reach out and talk, we are always available on social media at uh, Project Wildfire on uh, Facebook or on Twitter at Andromeda Minute. Uh, we will see you here back on Wednesday. Uh, in the meantime, please, to get rid of this plague as soon as possible, do the three things that everybody should be doing right now. Uh, wear a mask, stay six feet apart, and uh, the third one is wash your hands. Please wash your hands. Uh, that's one of the 
bigger <laughs> causes of uh, spreading uh, germs is through your hands. So anyway, keep keep doing that. And maybe we can get rid of this plague uh, as soon as possible. But we will see you here next time on the Andromeda Minute. Very flattering. We don't know much more than when we got here.